We'll hear argument this morning in case 08267, United States versus Donato. Mr. Shah. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, or CAF, held that military appellate courts possess open-ended jurisdiction under the All Writs Act to entertain a quorum nobis challenge to the merits of a final court-martial conviction. This Court should reverse that decision, both because the All Writs Act cannot supply jurisdiction that Congress chose not to confer, and because respondent is a civilian who may no longer invoke the military court system. As this Court explained in Clinton v. Goldsmith, military courts, as Article I courts, are strictly limited to the bases of jurisdiction conferred upon them by the Uniform Code of Military Justice, or UCMJ. Three related aspects of the UCMJ make clear that it does not confer jurisdiction over respondent's quorum nobis petition. First, as noted in Goldsmith, the UCMJ narrowly circumscribes military appellate jurisdiction to the findings and sentences of a court-martial conviction. That is a direct review jurisdiction. UCMJ Article 66 and 67, which define appellate jurisdiction, do not contemplate any further review within the military appellate courts. Second, once direct appellate review is complete and the military authority executes the judgment, UCMJ Article 76 affirmatively forecloses any further military court review. As this Court has recognized on two prior occasions, UCMJ Article 76 marks the terminal point of proceedings within the court-martial system. Mr. Shaw, how does that differ from the general rule that a judgment becomes final and has preclusive effect once the appellate route has been exhausted or the time to pursue it has expired? It seems to me that Article 76 simply codifies the rule that applies ordinarily in criminal cases, in civil cases, stating when a judgment becomes final for preclusion purposes? Uh, Your Honor, yes. Article 76 does that, but it does more than that. As this Court recognized in Gusick and in Councilman, it marks the end of proceedings within the military court system. Now, beyond the text, what this Court looked at in Gusick, in Gusick it was a petitioner seeking habeas review. One of his alternative arguments in Gusick was that Article 76 uh, essentially violated the suspension clause because it, it, it marked the end of term, uh, no further proceedings within the military court system as well as w- within the Article III court system. The Court agreed with the petitioner that Article 76 marked the end of any further proceedings within the military court system. It disagreed that it also affected a repeal of Article III habeas jurisdiction, but there was no disagreement between the petitioner, the government, and this Court in Gusick that it did mark the end of proceedings within the military court system. Yeah, therefore, one can say that that point wasn't decided in the case, right? Well, Your Honor, one could say that, but this Court, again, in Councilman, ratified that line uh, that the Court drew in Gusick. It, it, it reiterated the reasoning that Article 76 forecloses any further proceedings within the military court system. So I don't think it's just dicta. It was relevant to its denial of the suspension clause claim, and the Court reiterated that in Councilman um, uh, uh, 25 years later. Where, in your view, in the view that the government is putting forward, can this uh, candidate go? He said, I was misinformed by my counsel. I never would have entered a plea if I had known I would be subject to deportation. And he said, I never found out about it until, what, eight years later when the government, eight years after his conviction, the government said, you're subject to deportation. Where can he go with that plea? Uh, Your Honor, it appears that respondent no longer has any further remedies um, to to pursue. But we think the important point is that in a general in the general case, uh, a petitioner is bringing the exact same claim that respondent is is bringing is normally going to have several avenues of remedy outside. Well, we're assuming now because we haven't gone any further than his plea that he was so misinformed and he didn't lack diligence 
in failing to bring it earlier, that he was surprised by the government's action, so he was unaware and therefore unable to make this plea any earlier. You have given us the answer that it's too bad he's just out of any court. Well, Your Honor, I think it's important to note that the UCMJ marks the high watermark of process uh, within the military justice system. Uh, what the UCMJ did is it took the prior system, which didn't even allow for uh, real direct review within the military court system, and it made that direct review system much more robust. It added uh, an intermediate court of review. It took administrative review that was embodied within boards of tribunals that had typically been under the Judge Advocate General. It moved that out and gave it greater independence to provide more robust intermediate appellate review. It added an entire level of a new court, the Court of uh, Appeals for the Armed Forces, which provided uh, additional, a new level of review. And then it said well, still — Well, part, part of independence is the assurance that the Court uh, has the ability to do justice in the case before it. And uh, I, I think the purpose of Coram Nobis or Coram Bobis is to protect the integrity of the Court. And that's all this Court is asking. So that's quite consistent with what you've just said. Well, well, Your Honor, in, in enacting the UCMJ, Congress was bal- balancing several values. On the one hand, it was balancing the rights of, of service members, but at the same time, it was balancing the important value of maintaining good order and discipline within the armed force within the armed forces, mindful of the military's primary mission in fighting wars and defending the nation. Now, given those competing values, it was, it was reasonable for Congress to draw a line at some point and say, the conviction is final, and to the extent you want to seek further collateral review, you have to go to the civilian system to seek that review. That, 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 that line is reasonable not only from a historical standpoint, but also from a practical standpoint, given the institutional limitations. Is there of collateral review available in the civilian system, in your view? Uh, yes. As a general matter, there's 22. I mean, in this case? In this case, respondent no longer has any reviews because the time has passed. 2241 would so the be. the answer is no. In this case? No. There is no further review, Your Honor, in this case. Now, as, as a general matter, there are ample avenues of, of review within the civilian court system. For the entire time that a petitioner would be confined, he can seek 2241 habeas relief in the federal court system. Mr. Stella, you just said something about it. You answered my question and Justice Stevens' question. This person is out because it's too late for him. He was convicted in what? Was it 98? 1998, Your Honor. Yes. And the government never said anything about deportation until 2006. And they went through, he twice applied for naturalization. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct, Your Honor. And he was turned down on grounds that had nothing to do with deportation. The government never alerted him to the possibility that he would be deportable. They turned out his applications with no hint of that. And you say that uh, he is he's out of time, but nothing counts against the government because of, of that eight-year lapse? Right. Your Honor, in the denials, I, I agree with you that it did not alert him to deportation, but it based its denials on his military court convictions. So to that extent, uh, he was somewhat on notice that the military uh, court convictions were posing a problem to his citizenship, uh, potential citizenship status. Now, it is true, you're absolutely right, that the government did not begin uh, deportation proceedings until uh, October 2006. And until that time, he was not on notice. But the fact that this particular claimant, that the time is run, should not be dispositive. For well, example, the time, the, I mean, the time may very well run in the civil system, and yet I take it that uh, under, you, you accept Morgan and, and in the in the Article Three system, uh, this incomparable circumstances, uh, this petitioner could seek quorum nobis. Right. There are two reasons, And, and I honor. take it you also, I, I don't think there's any dispute that the All Writs Act applies to the Article One Court as well as to the Article Three Court. And I, I take it, and, and I'd, I'd like your response to this, I take it you accept the fact that in, in testimony before the House, at least, uh, at, the, at the time the present system went into effect, the uh, general counsel for the Department of Defense, Mr. Taft, 
testified to a House committee uh, that uh, quorum nobis would be available uh, in, in, the, uh, in the Article I courts. And if that is so, uh, isn't the kind of the most reasonable way to construe the statute, including Article 76, as, as allowing for this? Uh, no, Your Honor. Mr. Taft's testimony that you're referring to was not given at the time of enacting of the UCM. What, what was the occasion for it? That was uh, during a subsequent amending process uh, of the Act. The only testimony. What, what were they amending at the time? Uh, it was, I think, in, in terms of the 1983 amendments to the UCMJ. There have been several. You're, you're way ahead of me because I don't know what the 83 amendments would refer to. What, what okay. was the subject matter of them? Well, what Mr. Taft was testifying to, we believe, are he was the specific testimony that Mr. Taft was giving was related to the boards of correction, I believe, and and whether that the boards of correction should retain jurisdiction review of final court martial judgments. Mm -hmm. So his testimony was related to that distinction. Well, now, with respect to the boards of correction, I take it there's nothing specifically in the statute that says there's quorum nobis jurisdiction. Nothing specific in, in, in the UCMJ? Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing specific so if, in the UCMJ. So if he was right about that, that would undercut your, your argument uh, that with respect to a, a special court-martial uh, and subsequent proceedings, there could be no quorum nobis, because there's no specific reference in the statute in either case. Um, no, Your Honor. The, what Mr. Taft was testifying to was the state of the prevailing law in 1983 before the cap. The fact that Congress did not amend the UCMJ uh, in light of Mr. Taft's testimony, this, con- this Court has said on multiple occasions that we don't read into congressional silence. Oh, oh I, I, I quite agree. I, I, I'm the, the premise of my sort of my argument to you a second ago was uh, that if we accept the proposition that Mr. Taft was making a correct statement of law, right. Uh, then the logic uh, would, in effect, answer your argument that because there is no specific uh, grant of quorum nobis jurisdiction uh, in, with respect to special court marshals and subsequent proceedings, uh, there couldn't be any. That's, that's the, the only point that I was trying to make. Your Honor, I don't think we can read that into the silence, and here's why. We have much more precise legislative history on this very point at the time the provision was enacted at the time the UCMJ was enacted. There was Article 73 of the UCMJ provides one means of collateral review within the military justice system once a court-martial conviction is final. And that's a new trial petition which is limited to certain subject matter and certain time I mean, it is pretty limited. What is it? It's limited to, 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 to fact fra- and fraud, To, right? to fraud on the court and newly yeah. discovered evidence. The person who drafted is that it, Is it available to someone who entered a guilty plea? Um, new- it does not appear it would be available to someone who's entered a guilty plea. The government is, a, is not aware of any cases where the military has granted an Article 73 petition to someone who's pled guilty. But the important point is, at the time that provision was enacted, the person who drafted that provision testified before Congress and said, we've considered the universe of post-conviction remedies and specifically named quorum nobis relief and said that we're, we've looked at it and we think the only circumstances that warrant appeal within the military court system beyond quorum nobis are those stated within, or including well, quorum nobis, are those stated within Article 73. They, they, may I ask you, just, I'm doing this from memory, so I, I, my, my premise of the question may be wrong, but I do recall the quotation of testimony in the brief, and I, if I recall correctly, the person testifying said that, that 73 was sort of a combination of quorum nobis uh, and, and, new, and new trial uh, motion practice. But my recollection uh, was that there was no statement, or at least it wasn't quoted in the briefs, to the effect that this is all there is. In other words, it was explaining what 73 did. But it was not an explanation to the effect that if you didn't get under the, the, the tent flap in 73, you were out completely. Am I correct about that? Well, I, I'll, read the, I'll read this testimony to you, okay. uh, uh, Justice Souter. And this, th- this appears on pages 25 to 26 of the government's brief. And it says, what we did was to combine what amounts to a writ of error quorum nobis with the motion for a new trial on newly discovered evidence. We have provided for both of them, and to our minds, they are the only additional circumstances over and above the appeal that need a remedy. Okay, I stand corrected. So I think that's, that, that's conclusive on this point and, and provides a firm ground on which to d- distinguish this Court's 
uh, decision in Morgan, which you referenced earlier, that, uh, that applies quorum nobis in the Article III system. Congress considered it for the Articles I system and rejected it in the military. Does that mean that your, <clears throat> your argument boils down to the proposition that uh, the relevant provisions of the UCMJ were intended to eliminate quorum nobis? Or is there more to your argument? Uh, I don't think it's to eliminate quorum nobis. It was never available within the military court system. All right. Well, that, that, then I, I'm not quite sure I understand your argument. And maybe you can explain why you, you contend that if the respondent had been convicted in a federal district court and everything else was the same, he would be able to a petition for a writ of quorum nobis, but he can't in, in, uh, the, uh, in the military courts. What is the basis for that? Both a federal district court, a federal district court is a, a creature of statute. It has the jurisdiction that Congress gives it and no greater jurisdiction. Um, it has certain what's been termed inherent authority. The All Writs Act applies to it. All of those things are true of the military courts as well. So what is the basis for the distinction. There are two distinctions, at least two distinctions, Your Honor. The first is in the federal court system, there is an independent basis of jurisdiction when someone is bringing a federal constitutional challenge, collateral challenge to their conviction. That separate independent basis of jurisdiction is 1331. There is there's independent basis of jurisdiction. The All Writs Act does not confer jurisdiction. The Court made that very clear in Goldsmith. What it requires is an independent basis of jurisdiction. That exists in Article III courts. It does not exist in the military court system. That's the first distinction. The second distinction, Your Honor, even if this Court wasn't convinced by that jurisdictional argument, is that Congress uh, specifically considered whether to, to allow quorum nobis petitions within the military court system. The All Writs Act was designed to be a residual source of authority to fill gaps within the system. It is not well, well, that, as I understand it, was the argument I started out with, that the, your argument is that the UCMJ was intended to uh, eliminate quorum nobis if it had been previously available. That's, your, that's the argument you're making now. Well, <clears throat> I w- again, I would, I would quibble with the characterization to, to, that it was previously available. As of the enactment of the UCMJ in 1950, quorum nobis relief had never been available within the military justice system. Well, what is the difference on the face, on their face, between the relevant provisions of the UCMJ and the provisions that govern the ability of uh, a criminal defendant in federal district court to get relief after being convicted? The, the, you know, there are limited avenues that are pro- provided under the rules of criminal procedure and under the statutes, uh, just as there are in the UCMJ. What what is the difference? The difference is significant, Your Honor. In the the military court system, there's only one avenue for post-conviction relief. That is, after your, and I'm speaking after your direct review, appellate review process has been complete, there's only one, and that's the Article 73 new trial position. Petition, of course, in the, in the Article Three system, there there are several independent grants of jurisdiction: the habeas jurisdiction. But I thought the Morgan case said that quorum nobis was not dependent on any independent basis of jurisdiction. Uh, didn't the court say that a quorum nobis application challenging a conviction is a step in the criminal case, and not like habeas? where relief is sought in a separate case and record, the beginning of a separate proceeding. Right. In in Morgan, Your Honor, the Court was refuting the argument that 2255, Section 2255, occupied the field, and therefore uh, there wouldn't be a quorum nobis petition. It rejected that argument. Uh, But I don't think the rejection of that argument means that quorum nobis, which which is still a residual source of authority, is available when Congress has specifically rejected its application within the Article 1. Well, but but you're shifting ground a little bit. The tenor of the questions from uh, Justice Alito and Justice Ginsburg really is to the effect, does quorum nobis require an, an independent source of, of jurisdiction, and I should think not. Well, um, the whole idea of quorum nobis is to protect the integrity of the jurisdiction the court already has. Your Honor, this court could not have been clearer in Goldsmith. It says the All Writs Act requires an independent basis, an existing independent I, basis I, of jurisdiction. I, 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 I acknowledge that, but there is 
a source of jurisdiction here. Quorum nobis is to ensure the accurate exercise of jurisdiction that the Court has earlier asserted. With respect, Your Honor, I would argue that the past jurisdiction in this case does not constitute an existing basis of jurisdiction. Suppose, suppose that the uh, problem was a professional soldier convicted a certain number of years ago of a particular crime. A few years later, through some amazing mistake, they wrote the wrong number down. The clerk just wrote the wrong number of the code provision. That's all. Okay. And it made it, it as a felony instead. It was actually a misdemeanor. What's he supposed to do? I mean, normally you go back to the court and say, Judge, uh, you know, they just made a — everyone admits it's a simple transcribing error. Would you please correct it? Now, how how is that supposed to work in the military? If he's still within custody, he can — Oh, well, he's — no, he's he's finished his sentence. This is several years ago. They just now discovered it. And it could affect him in the future, that it happened, in fact, to be a misdemeanor he was convicted of. But the the code section they wrote down is a felony. Well, if the military isn't willing to correct that sort of error on its own as an administrative matter and that he needs some judicial form to to, to, to get relief, he can go to the Court of Federal Claims and bring a Tucker Act action. There's a six-year statute of limitations. Oh, this is seven years. Well, that, well, then, Your Honor, he probably wouldn't have a judicial — Can't even do that. So nobody in the military, in fact, once their thing is final, though they're profe- then it has nothing to do with it, in your view, that he's left the military. Well, well you're, you're saying, you're saying, whether you're in the military, <laughs> whether you're out of the military, no matter how egregious, no matter how obvious, there is no route for a military person, a professional, to go and get an obvious error corrected. If, if he's missed the statute, that there was an, the, ta- the, the civil statute limitations, uh, it's hard for him to go to the Tucker Act. He's been in the Philippines the entire time. Right. J- Justice Breyer, to make your hypothetical work, he has to no longer be in custody. He has had to have discovered this error, error six years after the conviction yep, has it happened. happened. It really the, happened. The, the military would have had to deny this o- correction. Uh, what I'm trying to do is suggest that I think you uh, — I can't quite decide what stool you want to rest on, that part of this you say, well, he's a civilian that has left the military, uh, and then I read right. that, it seems to have nothing to do with it. Well, but your other argument seems to be it, that doesn't matter. Well, just, no military soldier can correct an error, no matter how egregious — even a technical, you know, they just wrote the wrong thing down because Congress didn't want them to. Now, I doubt that Congress thought about that. I'm just not sure they didn't want them to. Well, well Your Honor, once again, your hypothetical, I think there would be an administrative recourse there. Um, and, of course, there's always the fail-safe of a presidential pardon if the obvious is error is that obvious and that egregious. Now, you did refer to our second argument, which is an independent argument, which is that the military courts lack jurisdiction for the independent reason that respondent — it's an independent reason, Your Honor, that he lacks uh, any remaining connection to the armed forces and therefore cannot invoke the military courts. This Court held in Toth v. Quarles that Congress lacks power under Article I to extend military court jurisdiction over a civilian. No, but that that's, that's, a different, that's a different issue from, from whether uh, it, it may retain some residual jurisdiction to correct an error with respect to someone over whom it has had jurisdiction. Your Honor, once again, that would be relying on the long-expired past jurisdiction. Well, you, you made that point before, and I, I want to I follow up with one question on that. Uh, as I recall, it was in response to the, to the Morgan argument. Uh, the, the Morgan analysis was, well, this isn't a, a new ground or a new assertion of jurisdiction, as would be the case in habeas. Uh, it, in effect, is, is kind of a metaphysical continuation of the, the jurisdiction that, that existed before. And your response to that was, uh, in effect, a Goldsmith response, and, and you said past jurisdiction doesn't mean present jurisdiction. The past jurisdiction is over, uh, and uh, that's under, under the statute and under Goldsmith, that's, that's the end of it. Couldn't that same argument simply have been made, uh, however, in, in, in Morgan? Uh, in other words, Morgan uh, was a case in which the point of finality had been reached. There was no specific statute in Morgan saying there's quorum nobis jurisdiction. 
And yet the Court's uh, analysis, I, I call it metaphysical a second ago, was that this really was simply a continuation of the past jurisdiction. If that was a sound argument in Morgan, why isn't it a sound argument with respect to the, 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 the military code here? Well, because the military, Congress specifically contemplated that possibility. And that now I'm going back to my Article 73 argument, Your Honor, and, and to the legislative history, which shows what Congress was trying to do in Article 73, that is to encapsulate whatever post-conviction remedy it's intended to be available within the military court system appears in Article 73. They considered quorum it, nobis. It, it did do that, uh, and there's, there's no question that it certainly made finality provision in Article 76. Uh, but in the civilian system, uh, so far as express provision is concerned, there are limits. There are statutes of limitations. Uh, and it seems to me that the same argument could be made there that was made here. Well, I or think this was made there. Your Honor, I think the structure of the military court system is different than the civilian system. And, and that goes back Outside to of 1331, is there any structural difference? Uh, yes, Your Honor. In the military court system, Article 76, even though it was first enacted in, 19, uh, in 1950, there were other provisions analogous to it. It's always been understood within the military system that once a conviction was final and the military authority executed the judgment, that was it in terms of review within the military justice system, save for a presidential pardon. Any further relief to be obtained was through an Article Three habeas petition in the federal courts. That's the understanding that Congress had when it enacted the UCMJ, and that's the understanding. Yeah, but you could say the same thing that when the statute of limitations is passed in a habeas case, uh, or indeed after habeas has been followed, that so far as the statutes governing Article Three courts are concerned, that's the end. And yet Morgan says, no, it isn't the end. There's this quorum nobis jurisdiction. Well, the difference is, in Morgan, the Court specifically said that Congress did not intend to occupy the field when it passed 2255, governing habeas relief for federal prisoners. That's not the situation here. We know that Congress intended to occupy the field when it passed Article 73. So regardless of the jurisdictional arguments, Your Honor. There's no right of action. There's no right of quorum nobis relief within the military courts. Your Honor, if there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Mr. Freitas. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Because they are courts, appellate military courts must have quorum nobis power to protect the integrity of their judgments. The Court of Appeals correctly asserted the same quorum nobis power that Article III courts have. What do you mean they must? Do you think it's unconstitutional uh, to deprive them of that? No, Your Honor. We believe that they were given the All Writs Act authority as a birthright in 1950, oh. and oh. that includes all prerogative writs, including quorum nobis. That, that's what you mean by they must have? And also, Your Honor, they must have the ability to protect the integrity of their judgments just like other federal courts have. The Superior Court in D.C. has the power to issue quorum nobis to protect its judgments. So we Fine, but, but is it unconstitutional for Congress to say military courts are different? They've always been different. The need for finality is greater there, and we're adopting a different rule for there. I think Congress has the authority to um, legislate very broadly in the area of uh, collateral remedies, and Congress could take away the writ of quorum nobis if it left in its place an adequate and effective substitute like it did in uh, 2255. Oh, 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 so it would be unconstitutional if they did not leave in its place an adequate and effective substitute. Our view is that if — Which would cover every situation, no matter how fanciful, right? No, Your Honor. We believe there has to be reasonable opportunity to bring a colorable constitutional claim for which there is no other avenue of relief, which we believe is the case here. What — which case of ours establishes the proposition that there always has to be an available avenue of relief? The best authority we have for that, Your Honor, is Webster v. Doe, uh, which we believe stands for the proposition that courts should read statutes so as not to preclude judicial review of, of a constitutional claim absent an express congressional intent to do so. And we well, that's different than saying there always has to be uh, available relief. That's saying you think Congress usually intends there to be available relief, and that would be a doubtful assumption here given the rather clear expressions of finality 
that that are uh, of a, that are in the UCMJ statutes. On your well, uh, if I could make two points, Your Honor. On the first, uh, we don't believe that um, there is square authority for the bedrock constitutional proposition that Congress can wipe away all avenues of relief for a claim. Um, uh, we believe that we were, were probably. You don't, you, you don't think there's authority for the proposition they can do it. Correct. I'm looking for authority that says they can't do it. I'm not aware of any, Your Honor. Uh, we would, I think we're. Did, 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 did uh, Coram Nobis uh, relief, uh, you, you, you say it, it has to be there. Was it ever used before in the military courts? Well, that, yes, I would like to, yes, Your Honor. It has been used since 1966. Um, I assume you may be asking about before 1950. Uh, indeed, yes. Yes. Well, the reason it hasn't happened before 1950 is that the UCMJ was created in 1950, and that was the first time there were military courts. There were no courts, so therefore no All Writs Act authority prior to 1950. Worse still. My goodness. So you, you were Absolutely. Convicted, convicted by a court-martial and had no basis for, for getting that revised, and that, that lasted for a couple of hundred years, right? And that was okay, or it wasn't okay? Well, that, I think that's the impetus behind the UCMJ, Your Honor. That well, that's fine. I mean, you can patch it up and, and say that, that they thought it wasn't a good idea to have just military courts. But it's very hard to make the, the constitutional argument you're making when, for a couple of hundred years, uh, in military in military courts, which are different, uh, there 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 was no, no relief at all. The, I think the system. For me, Mr. Are you contending that the results you seek is constitutionally compelled? I didn't think you were. Not, no, not, we aren't, Your Honor. I was more responding to the Chief Justice's And comment. you were saying it is. I mean, just, just say no, it's not constitutionally compelled, and I'll be happy. <laughs> no, Your Honor. <laughs> you are, Wait, well, sorry, well you, might, you might say that there is a lurking constitutional question and that we ought to interpret the statute to avoid a, a constitutional concern. I think, um, Your Honor, that's the, the best answer that I should have given. <laughs> Where, uh, I don't where is like it lurking? What, what is your argument is that the Constitution does not require that this person have right now an available avenue of relief? You're, we, we don't have square authority from this Court to support that proposition. So then it becomes, as Justice Kennedy suggested, a question of whether or not we should read the statutes here in a particular way to avoid confronting that question. Yes, Your Honor. I think that's where we're, we're comfortably in that neck of the woods, and we really don't need to get closer to the scarier question um, that was alluded to. So when, think, when you say it's lurking, you're, you're, you're invoking the, the doctrine of constitutional avoidance. Yes, Your Honor. Okay. We are. I but you think, think it's that. much of a lurk if for 200 years there, this, this was going on without ever it, — it's not, not lurking to my mind. But you're, you're making — I thought that the — the core of your argument is that the All Writs Act applies to all courts established by Congress. The military courts are included in that definition. And there's nothing in the All Writs Act that says it doesn't apply to the military. But the All Writs Act requires that the writ be in aid of the court's jurisdiction. So if you would spell out how the writ here is in aid of the military court's jurisdiction. Yes, yes Your Honor. We believe it does it in, in a very similar way that uh, this Court um, explained in United States versus Morgan, and that is the writ of quorum nobis aids the past appellate jurisdiction that the Navy Court had when it affirmed and reviewed Mr. Donetto's conviction. It had jurisdiction there, and the quorum nobis writ by its very nature allows a, a court to correct an error in a case that was before it but it failed to perceive that error uh, while it had the case before it. And had it known the facts we now know, after all of the remedies are no longer available, uh, the Court would not have issued the judgment that it issued. That's the na that, in that sense, that's how the writ aids the jurisdiction the Court had in the past. Well, if that's so, then I guess you're, you can have courts reviewing uh, the civilians. Uh, they will review after the event the court-martial jurisdiction uh, the court-martials of people while they were in the military. That'll become a matter of course. Any time. I mean, there are many, many uh, errors. We, we have approximately uh, 5,000 uh, uh, petitions a year claiming some kind of constitutional error, uh, and sometimes they're right. Yes, sir. Uh, that's what you foresee. 
I, I would — yes and no. Well, what way is it no? No is when the individual is not in custody mm-hmm. and the six-year statute of limitations has expired for all the types of claims that are available for a collateral attack of a court-martial conviction, uh, a declaratory judgment attack, a mandamus attack, a uh, court of federal claims attack, all those. Why, in other words, in the case I posed, uh, he, he, in your view, he wouldn't have any remedy. You agree with the government about that. If it's seven years later, you find a clerical error. We agree. We, we don't think it's necessary, actually, to decide the issue here. The issue here really is whether quorum nobis is a Well, if, in fact, you're waiting until the, the uh, civil courts have lost all jurisdiction uh, because the statute of limitations has expired, why do you need this? Why can't they just go? I mean, what's, what, why do you need this special thing that hasn't existed for 200 years? Why don't they just go to a civil case? And moreover, why doesn't your client fall within that situation? You're, you're claiming uh, that if all the statutes have run and everything, there is no quorum, no biz jurisdiction. I thought in your case they had all run. Well, this gets to the other um, piece of the answer I was trying to give, that, and that is a, a petitioner from the, the military system could not file a quorum nobis petition in the Article Three courts or the Court of Federal Claims because there's, there's no authority that supports the proposition that you can take a quorum nobis petition and attack a judgment from a different jurisdiction. Quorum nobis has to allow the court that issue that, that — Then you're saying that what you're foreseeing is through quorum nobis indefinitely a, a, a person outside the military who once was in it can bring constitutional challenges. Yes, Your Honor, in the yes. military justice system. Okay. And we see those every day. Don't. But there is one difference. The difference is that often, though not always, a person in habeas who challenges a prior normal uh, civil system conviction, the state can retry him. And I guess in the instance that we're talking about, he can never be retried. So, in fact, the difference would be, in your view, the civilians who bring this would never be retried if they're right. That's correct, Your Honor. And so they would have, in that sense, greater protection in the military system than in the ordinary criminal courts a person has in habeas, because the option of retrial is often but not always there. Now, why would Congress have intended that? I think it's the, the very nature of the quorum nobis petition, Your Honor, and that is quorum nobis petitioners have already served their entire sentence. So the societal interest to seek a retrial is much lesser than in a habeas case where there's a lengthy sentence less or left than if someone gets out of jail. Well, but the collateral consequences of the conviction are pretty dramatic. In this case, they decide whether this guy stays in the country or is deported. Yes, Your Honor. Well, so I think Justice Breyer's question is, is still on the table. Why would Congress intend to afford greater relief and remedies to somebody who's outside, was within the military system and is now outside, than to an ordinary civilian under Article Three jurisdiction? I, th- I think there is a classic distinction between the habeas and the quorum nobis petitioner. In, in, in a quorum nobis petitioner under 2255, if they were to file a successful petition long after a statute of limitations had expired, they'd be in no different position than, than a, quorum nobis, a successful quorum nobis petitioner in the military. Now, we would say we do believe there's a, a uh, colorable argument for, um, prosec- for the ability to retry Mr. Donetto, but it's not pivotal to our case. Our view is that the inability colorable um, In the civilian courts or the military courts? The military courts, Your Honor. I think you have a good answer to what my question was. I thought that was a good answer. It's helping me. And, but what I'm, where I'm, where I'm slightly, and maybe that's, this is not relevant to this case, or maybe it's for the future. Quorum nobis, I thought, was a writ that means really like technical clerical errors or something really unusual. Uh, is this, I mean, it's hardly ever there. I've, I've not really seen more than a handful of cases. So, so is this writ supposed to be available where what you're claiming is what I'd call a typical error of inadequate representation? And I don't know the answer to that question, but I, I think it's — maybe you could say that's not prevent, presented. Maybe that's for a later case. 
I don't know how to treat it. That's why I'm asking. I think Morgan uh, is helpful on that, Your Honor. Morgan is a violation of the right to counsel, and it's this Court's — But that, that question wasn't resolved, was it? I thought we were just talking about the authority of the military courts to issue this writ. And the question that Justice Breyer has raised, well, is this ineffective assistance of counsel adequate grounds to issue the writ? I thought that question was certainly not raised before this Court. Well, the, the government hasn't urged that um, there's no ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, it's not in their um, opening. Well, let's but assume it raised because Justice Breyer yes. asked the question. And yeah. I it's why I'm fine. I know it wasn't. Yes, Your Honor. I thought it might be your answer. Well, that isn't raised. <laughs> and uh, I, that would be a perfectly good answer. That's, that's but I'm, I, I'm telling you my honest problem, which I'm trying to think through. Where are we going with this? I think What's going to happen one way or the other way? That's why I asked the question. So all I'm asking is your best thought on it. Yes, Your Honor. I think United States versus Kwan and uh, United States versus Castro are two court two cases that give the answer to your question, and both of those indicate that ineffective assistance of counsel in very similar factual circumstances to this uh, is a basis for quorum nobis relief after um, uh, after the the uh, ineffective assistance is discovered. We recognize this court is granted in military courts now since 1950 have quite a record of saying quorum nobis is available in these courts. However. They have routinely thrown out the cases on the merits. Is there any case within the military where the military has said anything like inadequate assistance of counsel qualifies as a reason to grant the writ? Aside from this, this case below, Your Honor, uh, I don't know of a case that raised ineffective assistance of counsel. And you are correct that mo- the vast majority of these cases are thrown out of court in the most, in the briefest of orders. There are cases where relief has been granted. They're few and far between. Um, Del Prado is one. It involved a, a compositional jurisdictional error to the, uh, to the court. An individual failed to elect military judge alone in writing and, and waived the right to have a, a member's jury trial. And that was deemed a jurisdictional defect. And long after the case was final, uh, it, the, the conviction was set aside. And I would, I would note the court in, in that case observed that personal jurisdiction was no obstacle to granting the quorum nobis relief. Was that person retried, do you know? I was do not know, Was he in the military? I do not know. He was the, — the relief — the decretal paragraph of the, of the decision indicates that he was restored all rights and benefits, but it stopped shy of saying, you know, here's your uniform back. Do I understand correctly that since 1989, there were a total of 30 quorum nobis petitions filed, and of those, only four were granted? The statistics that we cited in our brief, Your Honor, were 10 quorum nobis petitions at the Court of Appeals within the last 10 years. Yes. And 176 uh, writ appeals from the lower courts up to the Court of Appeals that don't break out the category of writs. They could be habeas. They could be quorum nobis mandamus. So we don't know what percentage of the 176. But even if it was a, a significant percentage, it's still a tiny percentage of the Court's uh, overall docket. But they're, they're rarer than hen's teeth, Your Honor. These cases um, — one a year, maybe, is, would be the average of a quorum nobis. What is the theory of the jurisdiction of the military court in the circumstance where the individual is still in the military, he's been convicted, and he is in custody? So he wants to get out of custody. Now, what's the theory of that? He can, I take it, it's accepted, is it, that they can, uh, that such a person can uh, ask the military justice system, I don't know which court, uh, for release on the ground that he didn't, wasn't adequately represented or some other ground. That would be a habeas case, Your Honor. Right. It's a habeas case. Now, do you have, can you do that in the military? Yes, th- there are. And what's the theory of the jurisdiction that the military courts have over that? It's similar in that it, it's, uh, All Writs Act authority aiding Aiding what jurisdiction? The direct review um, authority of the military. But they've already directly reviewed it. Correct. And that's, so that's, there is no more direct review to be had. That's correct, Your Honor. So how does this aid the direct review that is to be had since there is none? It, it aids it in the same way this Court recognized it can do so in Goldsmith, where it acknowledged that a mandamus writ could issue after finality to compel adherence to the Court's own judgment. So the, within, the, within the military system? 
Yes, Your Honor, within the military justice system. And that, in Goldsmith, it was, it was a situation where Goldsmith was um, out, of the, you know, out of the military, had a final, well, I guess he was in custody, but he had a, um, a final court-martial conviction. And this Court indicated that a writ of mandamus could issue to aid past appellate jurisdiction to compel adherence to All the within the system. I mean, the difference with this case is that you're talking about somebody who is, I guess that's the issue, out of the military system. The problem with your position is that it would dramatically expand the jurisdiction of the military system. It would sort of follow everybody they've dealt with around for their life, right? The, the fact that At any time, somebody who's out of the military system, whose judgment is supposedly final under the provisions that Congress has established, the, he could come back and knock on the door 20 years later and say, I want to review my conviction. That's correct, Your Honor. And he would be within the military system. He would be um, a civilian, former service member, right. filing a quorum nobis petition, and the quorum And nobis he's back in the military system. 20 years later. For purposes of a quorum nobis petition. In, in quorum nobis cases uh, in the civil system, do courts appoint special masters when they're in appellate court and they have to find out who's quorum nobis? Always, yes. Do they use district courts as special masters? They, they, in this case, you had to, the, uh, the court had to invent a procedural device. There's going to be a new court martial, um, which is a little odd because it's a new court martial sitting in judgment on somebody who isn't even in the military anymore? It's not a court-martial, Your Honor. It's what's called a Dubay proceeding. And what happens is, and this is in the decretal paragraph of the, the decision below, a, a, the remand is for further factual development. And if the case can be disposed of on declarations, if the government came forth, it didn't do so below, but if it did so on remand and provided um, affidavits that blew our affidavits out of the water, the Court could dismiss the petition out of hand. If, if they couldn't do that, or if there was a credibility contest that, that needed to be resolved, what would happen is the court would order what's called a Dubé hearing, where a judge is appointed, and it's just like an evidentiary hearing at witnesses are presented and they're cross-examined, and then findings of fact are made, conclu- conclusions of law are drawn, and then that is put into a record, added to the, the record of trial, and reviewed in the Quorum Novus petition. But, but all of that is extra statutory in your, in this instance. We don't believe so. We believe the court, um, the, the, the Navy court here has decisional authority under Article 66 to do fact-finding. It's a very unique um, court. Congress created these courts with fact-finding power, which is different than, I think, virtually all appellate courts, save maybe um, one or two uh, uh, um, unusual situations. But these courts have fact-finding power. So it's right in Article 66. And these courts also have rulemaking authority. And so does the Court of Appeals, and it has exercised that to provide for these procedures. So we don't where, believe where, where are the procedures set out for, uh, for military habeas? Uh, they're not. And actually, that, that, this Court pointed that out in Noid v. Bond. It said that, that military appellate courts have habeas power, but the Court of Appeals um, hadn't provided rules, and Congress could facilitate with rules, but hadn't. But that didn't stop this Court from saying habeas power existed. The absence of the procedure. Well, are, you, are you arguing, then, that if it has habeas power without a, a, uh, a textual basis, uh, there's no reason to argue that it, it lacks quorum nobis power because there's no textual basis? I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, the, 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 the negative in there caught me, but I, yes, I think we're, yeah. that's what we're saying. Right. But this court has never held that the military courts have habeas jurisdiction. Yes, it has, Your Honor. In what case? In Noy v. Bond, this court um, squarely held that military, the Court of Appeals at the time has habeas authority. For someone still within the military system? That was the case where the individual was um, pending uh, appeal, I believe. So the answer well, to Justice Ginsburg is that we have never held that with respect to a situation like the facts here, where you're dealing with somebody who's outside, long departed from the military system. Well, I would, I would direct the Court's attention, if I could, to footnote 11 of Goldsmith, where this Court says, um, and of course, once a criminal conviction has been finally reviewed within the military system and a service member in custody has exhausted other avenues provided under the UCMJ to seek relief from his conviction, uh, citing Noid, the six pages therein, which refers to the military court's habeas power, this, this court in Goldsmith put habeas power in the context of a, um, a, fin- a final case, so habeas authority after um, final relief. Within, but we're within. talking about somebody still within the military, if I, if I heard the quote correctly. Well, individuals right? is out of the military if, they ha- if they're um, 
dismissal has been executed or their discharge has been executed and they're in Leavenworth, they could even be moved to another federal penitentiary, the, still the, in custody. So the, not really in the military. The quote that you re- refer to from Goldsmith says, and a service member in custody. So I think Goldsmith, in that footnote that you're citing, is presenting a service member still in custody, having exhausted all other areas, can come to a federal district court and seek habeas. It's not talking about somebody who's out of the military. I, I read it differently, Ron. I read it, the next clause in that sentence is referring to habeas outside. I read this sentence as clearly saying um, that there's direct review, there's habeas after direct review within the military, and then there's, of course, collateral review in the Article Three courts if, if everything misfires within the military justice system. Well, what am I missing? And I thought that the footnote reads, once a criminal conviction has been finally reviewed within the military system, a service member, having exhausted all other areas, can petition in a federal district court for a writ of habeas corpus. I don't see anything that talks about somebody who's no longer a service member. Right. I, I, I see the in-custody and exhausted avenues provided in the UCMJ <clears throat> as referring to a phase before you get to the Article Three courts. I mean, obviously, if I'm, I'm reading it wrong, the, uh, the Court will let me know, but I, I read that as um, prior to Article Three review. If I, if I could talk briefly about the 1983 legislation that came up in opposing counsel's um, opening, I think it sheds a lot of light on the availability of quorum nobis of relief. When Mr. Taft testified, he wasn't simply giving his, uh, he wasn't simply stating the state of the law. He was providing the state of the law as a premise for legislative action, in particular stripping collateral review authority from the correction boards, which used to be able to review uh, collaterally after final judgment military convictions. And that existed before the UCMJ was enacted. This is, this is at a hearing. This isn't a member of Congress, obviously, that we're talking about. It's not even a one single member of Congress. This is the chief uh, counsel for the Department of Defense proposing the legislation and offering the only premise there was for the particular legislative change that I'm referring to, which is stripping the, the correction boards of this collateral review power and saying, when we do that, don't worry, Congress, because it will channel these collateral, post-final collateral attacks into the military courts, and, and they can have habeas. He says habeas. Under the, sorry, specific, under the specific provision that was at issue, which is accompanied by very strict finality provisions. There's no suggestion in his testimony that the availability of the relief that he's talking about continues after the individual is outside the military system. He's channeling it. He says these are channeled through a specific provision applicable only within the military system. I don't read it that way, Your Honor. I read it as channeling um, at post-final attacks within the military — within the courts in the military justice system, even though the, the person is, is — a, a final judgment typically — happens before an individual is no longer in the service. A final judgment is final because the discharge has been executed. So what he's referring to is once you have a final judgment, you then can seek collateral relief in the military the way you used to be able to do it in the correction boards uh, in the military courts. And he was saying, now that we're getting rid of this one collateral remedy in these correction boards, we're giving you this other one. We're not giving — we're just channeling all of them into the military appellate courts, which is a, a more appropriate judicial form. And he, he says clearly it, it would denigrate the courts to have administrative bodies overturning their judgments, once again showing that these are final judgments that, that we're talking about. Um, and the on, that was the only premise he offered to make the change. So stripping away one remedy while leaving another intact is the single premise which is reflected in the House uh, the Senate report on page 52 of our brief, where Congress adopts the exact language out of his sworn testimony um, with, you know, tiny variation, but that's the premise for the change in the legislation. I'd also note that in that legislation, this is the the Department of Defense proposing to open the door to this Court's jurisdiction for the first time in uh, in 28 U.S.C. uh, 1259. And when it did that, it had to survey the whole landscape of military justice jurisdiction. And when it did that, it saw that there were direct review cases, which are reflected in 1259, paragraphs 1, 2, and 3, 
and then this other category that is defined by what's not in paragraphs 1, 2, and 3. And that's the All Writs Act cases. The government acknowledges. I'm sorry. I've had the chance to go back and look at the Senate report. And like Mr. Taft's testimony, there's no suggestion in there that the relief he's talking about continues after someone is out of the service. I think that's implicit in a uh, final judgment, Your Honor. If, if there's a final judgment. Well, a final judgment is subject to review in the appellate courts within the, in the military system. Just like you have a final court of appeals judgment is subject to review in our system. Yeah, yeah, Your Honor, um, the, the, the key difference is, is that two things. He's referring to post-finality which means that the discharge or the, um, you know, the sentence has been executed. The person is out. They're a civilian at that point. And quorum nobis, by its very nature, is someone who's not in custody. So um, I don't think it's too much of an inference to read that what he's saying. When you have review in the appellate system, someone is, the, the judgment is that they're to be discharged and they seek review. Are they discharged while the review is going on? No, on direct review, you're right, Your Honor. They're, they remain within the service. Um, and it, it's interesting that uh, the government cites Mr. Taft's uh, testimony uh, as authoritative on that point. And that, that, that makes good sense. Keep the person in for direct review so that if the sentence is set aside, we can retry. But there has been decades of military justice authority that says even if someone is discharged before their conviction is set aside, so they're on direct review, their conviction is set aside um, after they're already out in their civilian world, you know, doing whatever they're doing. If, if the government wants to retry them, they do. And the government is, is the party that asserts continuing jurisdiction to re-prosecute. And that's why this case is so um, distinguishable from Toth v. Quarles, because Toth, there was no conviction while the individual was on active duty. And that's why there couldn't have been a retrial. Here, there was conviction on active duty, which is where jurisdiction attaches. It cements in. And if the government wants to invoke that to retry Mr. Donetto, um, it can try that. I would say, though, that if, if there were a personal jurisdiction loophole here, um, like there was for MEJA, the Military Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act, Congress could fix it in a heartbeat. Um, but we're talking about, you know, 10 cases in 10 years. So even if someone you know, got away without reaching you, you don't think that if you prevail in this case, we're going to see a lot more quorum nobis petitions than we did before? I, I think there would be um, an uptick. And there may actually have been an uptick while this case has been um, uh, up here at this level uh, because it's, it's gotten a lot of visibility in the military, just like there was an uptick uh, after Noy v. Bond when this Court uh, declared for the first time that military courts had All Writs Act power. Um, so I think there could be an uptick. But once the novelty of it wears off, I think you will see that level off, and you'll see the same trend that we've seen since 66 when it was available the first time. I mean, th- this isn't new. The only thing new here is the government's interpretation of Article 76. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Honor. Mr. Shaw, you have three minutes remaining. Mr. Shaw, could you tell us what the government's position is on whether uh, when somebody has been discharged from the service and then a conviction which uh, which he uh, uh, suffered while he was in the service is set aside, can he be retried in military courts? Not if he has passed his enlistment period, no, Your Honor. The government's view is that they would not be able to retry him. Um, I'd just like to make four quick points in response. First, uh, to the Chief Justice's question, could someone be in custody uh, after finality? Of course, yes, that, that could be the case. Uh, the military doesn't have to issue a bad conduct discharge as part of its sentence. He could still be in confinement and within the military during the post-finality period. The second point I'd like to make is that Noid v. Bond uh, is clearly distinguishable. That dealt with habeas review within the military while the person was still pursuing his direct appeal. So there was a clear independent basis of jurisdiction in the Noid v. Bond-type situation, and that's the Article 66 and 67 direct review jurisdiction. What has direct review got to do with habeas? Well, well, Your Honor, the the, the habeas uh, would be in aid of the direct review jurisdiction in in Noid v. Bond. The civil system we regard it as, as entirely a separate proceeding. Well, well, what was going on in Noid v. Bond, Your Honor, is he was pursuing a habeas petition for release pending the resolution of his direct appeal. So the military courts just referred the petition to the same court reviewing his direct appeal on the merits, and it became part and parcel 
of that jurisdiction. The third point I'd like to, to make is in response to Justice Kennedy's question, which shows the incompatibility of quorum nobis relief within the military justice system, that they've had to create this Dubé procedure, um, where, where a new court-martial, and Dubé sets this out, a new court-martial does have to be convened, and then they would have a fact-finding tribunal in which new, new, a new military judge would have to be assigned to govern it. None of that is specified within uh, Congress's scheme. That has all been created, uh, and it shows the incompatibility and the practical burdens that this procedure places on the military. And nothing in Article 66C, which governs the uh, jurisdiction of the military appellate courts, the intermediate courts, uh, references uh, any independent fact-finding power. It says in a case referred to it, the Court of Criminal Appeals may act only with respect to the findings and sentences as approved by the convening authority. It may affirm only such findings of guilty and the sentence or such part or amount of the sentence as it finds in correct in law and fact and determines on the basis of the entire record. Why don't you briefly make your fourth point? Uh, the fourth, fourth point is in response to Justice Breyer. My military colleagues informed me that in the situation of a true clerical error, they could go to the Board of Correction of Military Review and seek correction of that error. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.